Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. I'm Tun Mian, the producer with our hosts Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. Before we get into our interview, I have John Volk here, who is the director of the Continuing Education Department at the New York Academy of Art. And we've been working a lot together lately because I recently started working at the Academy too. John, uh, what is it that I do again? <laughs> I mean, besides giving me more work to do, uh, the truth is, Tun and I have been working together on a project, well, mostly me, to give a facelift to the Academy's website where people can start taking art classes online and in person. Tun and his team, along with Academy President David Kratz, have been developing a series of outstanding self-paced instructional videos that cover a wide range of topics and are for every artist of all skill level from beginner to advanced. These videos are just starting to be released. You can browse and buy courses on your phone, so now it's really very easy. That's right, and we have some great sales happening right now and a holiday special where you can gift the gift of art education to someone who might actually appreciate a thoughtful art class instead of a last-minute sock collection. Hey, didn't you shoot a video course with Marshall? Yes, our host Marshall Jones has a new self-paced video coming out soon, so that's even more reason to go visit Academy Everywhere. That's academyeverywhere.com. One word. Yeah, and I will add the link in the notes. John, I'll see you in 10 minutes on our next Zoom meeting. And now without further ado, enjoy the interview with Daniel Maidman. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Grime podcast. I'm Marshall Jones here with co-host Dina Brodsky. And today we have the special treat of interviewing a, a bit of a renaissance man. He's a writer. He also writes about art, a wonderful drafts person and a painter, uh, the great Daniel Maidman. Daniel, how you doing? Uh, that's a really nice introduction. Thank you. <laughs> I'm doing much better now. <laughs> it's great to talk to you guys. <laughs> yeah, so happy to have you here. So walk us through what, what developed your interest in art. Uh, I think it was pretty much uh, inherited. I started drawing and painting when I was like two or three years old. Uh, my mom was an artist at that time. Uh, and then she that was interrupted for a long career in uh, business. And now she's an artist again. Um, uh, her dad drew, uh, I think like two or three generations before that are known wow. to have drawn. And, uh, so I just was always, uh, naturally, uh, drew and painted. Um, although I didn't take it seriously till I was about like 20 or 21. And okay. then that became a major thing that I did. And it's been a major uh, thing that I do ever since. Wow. And, and where did you grow up? Toronto. Oh, mostly. Toronto. oh I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. Cool. So what was it like having a mom as a, as an artist was, do you, are, are you guys competitive with each other at all? Or is it pretty friendly? Or? No, it's really friendly. Um, I, I mean, she, she always wanted to be making art, uh, while she was, uh, you know, being an executive to support raising a family. And, um, uh, and so it's, uh, you know, she was looking forward to retiring and getting to go back to full-time art making and it's been going really well uh, for her. And she, she, I mean, she mostly does like somewhat expressionistic landscapes. So we have very little overlap in what we do. Um, but it's been fantastic uh, seeing her uh, progress uh, way beyond uh, what she was doing when she stopped working in the 80s. And, um, and, uh, and seeing her showing and like, you know, getting to know the art community. It's really nice. So uh, I'm really, really happy for her. That's great. Yeah. 
Daniel's mom, by the way, who I've met a few times, I think both in person and online, is one of the smartest, kindest people that I've ever met. Your your mom's amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> She's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not like having any mom as an artist. Um, it's having her specifically as a mom would have been absolutely wonderful, whatever she did. It's, it's not like the Alice Neal's kids experience. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that documentary? Yes. <laughs> Where they're like, wow, they're still angry. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the feeling I got off that documentary, too. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the kids got pushed out of the apartment by like those paintings stacked one after another on the walls was wild. Yeah. So have have you and your mom ever shown together? We have. Uh we uh I, I, we've shown together a few times, um, most recently at uh, New York Artists' Equity Association. Mm, cool. Yeah. So that's really cool, like awesome to get to show with my mom. That's so, so great. Group show we were both in. So getting back to um, you at 21 when you're just starting to take art seriously, did mm-hmm. you go to art school? Uh, no. Um, I went to an art high school, but uh, my um, the head of the program was a uh, doctrinaire abstract expressionist. Uh, and our particular year was all figurative people. So we really drove her nuts. Uh, but we didn't, I mean, we had a few people, uh, so a few teachers who understood what we were interested in and tried to help us out. Um, but I mean, it was, it was really, it was really great as a high school experience, but I don't think it was, it contributed all that much to my formation as an artist. Uh, and the rest is self-taught. Uh, except for um, I took uh, gross anatomy at Santa Monica College, uh, for which I will always be grateful because I had a wonderful uh, professor there, uh, Marguerite Adele, and uh, I had two years of more or less unrestricted access to cadavers. So that that really made a difference for me. Wow, that two years. Wow. What, yeah. what was that like for you? I did a semester of that, and it was so existentially heavy, like dealing with that? What was your experience with, with the actual bodies? Were you in Michael Grimaldi's uh, class for that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So our, I was in, mine was not an art program. It was a, a program for medical auxiliary professions. Uh, so like, you know, um, people who aren't doctors, but who help doctors and need gross anatomy. Uh, and it was pretty lighthearted actually, you know, I guess there's like med students, uh, legendarily develop a, you know, grotesque sense of humor with their yes. cadavers. And I experienced some of that. And, um, uh, you know, we were pretty comfortable with them. Uh, we were mostly in self-directed groups. So there were like three or four cadavers every semester. And they'd be like, here's what you're doing today. And there would be supervision, but the students were doing the dissection. And uh, yeah. I, I participated to a limited extent in that. But whenever a part of the body was done with, I had uh, they would let me do what I wanted uh, for the, um, I was drawing an anatomical atlas. So I just, you know, I, I worked with the cadavers. We all had a good time. Uh, there was, uh, there was due respect for, uh, for them uh, as having been generous people, but it was not a grim situation. Mm. That's great. Yeah, it was. Um, well, I guess I have two, two part question. Sure. Do you think an artist needs to learn anatomy, a figurative artist? And also, do you, how do you think that experience has informed your drawings? Okay. Um, I don't think, like, if you're going to be, you know, 
Marc Chagall or Giacometti or something, something where like the degree of expressionism totally swamps accurate representation. I think probably you can get away without it, although it will make your life easier with it. Uh, I think for any degree of um, like like high verisimilitude representation, uh, you can't help but benefit from a good knowledge of anatomy. Right. Uh, there is so much going on underneath the surface that defines what you see. Uh, and so it's it's like trying to understand a planet without understanding its interior. You know, it, you're, it's a massive gap in your in your knowledge. And you'll always be sort of uh, pawing around in the dark trying to figure out which forms are which. Like, if you don't have an intellectual framework uh, to fit it into uh, and like a sense of, of how the dynamics of the body uh, produce the uh, visual effects that you see, um, it's very hit or miss. And I, uh, I benefited enormously. I wound up in there because I couldn't do backs. And I was like, I know backs are complicated. I know Michelangelo and Da Vinci were really good at backs, and they also did anatomical dissection. Uh, so I just uh, did research around LA until I found a place that would let me um, uh, part- like uh, participate in uh, in dissection, and uh, and it completely changed uh, my drawing and painting. Wow. Yeah, your 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 drawings have such a nice sense of like not only accuracy, like the body, but also a lyrical kind of poetry. Like one, the movement is, to me, does seem quite anatomical, like one form influencing the other. Mm -hmm. Um, So it seems like, I mean, I'm guessing, but it seems like it kind of helped you not just find the forms, but also weave them together and make a whole almost composition out of the body. I feel like that. I mean, I, I, they're not necessarily anatomically accurate, but, um, but the but anatomy became after sufficient practice another another one of those intuitive tools that you have at your disposal, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I I really want to have that sense of grace and movement and life and poetry in the figure. Uh, so the um, the the anatomy opened up uh, the vocabulary of the of the body as a mechanical phenomenon. Um, and that, uh, and uh, so that contributes very actively to uh, to the work that I do. Hmm. Yeah, and I think your work sure does have that sense of flow to it that I really appreciate. Um, what do you think is important or significant about drawing the figure today? I think that I think that we uh, live in a culture surrounded by overwhelming ugliness hmm. on with the one hand and a kind of uh, tawdry approach to the figure. On the other hand, uh, everything has been uh, turned into advertising and pornography. Mm. And uh, it's just uh, being surrounded by a landscape of, uh, of garbage and, uh, and, and futility uh, is really soul deadening. Uh, and I think that, um, I think that uh, the artistic depiction of the figure uh, participating in uh, sort of a core set of um, of humanistic values that's persisted for thousands of years helps to reawaken us uh, to uh, the dignity of human beings and the uh, beauty and variety of our experience here. Um, so I think that's pretty important, and uh, I, I think that I think that 
we, you know, people who say, well, art makes a difference in the world are wrong. I don't think it really makes a difference in the world, but I do think it makes a difference in our souls. Uh, mm. That's important. Daniel, by the way, I completely agree with what you said about like restoring the dignity of the figure and just like the humanistic ideals part. But I, the first part of what you said, I feel like I completely disagree with, right? Okay. I feel like everything is just tawdry pornography because I was just, you know, this, this morning I went for a bike ride and I was, I don't know, bicycling past this grove of old beech trees that I like like to draw sometimes. And it was like six in the morning and the whole world was just waking up. And, you know, this little suburbs that I live in right now felt so beautiful and magical and like 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 the opposite of what you said like I get oh it. yeah no i I'm, i think i don't i don't disagree with you about that i think the constructed landscape has degenerated like like okay i i disagree with that too actually okay go for it so everything you said exists mm-hmm. right there's also so many like so much good art and good books and good music like there's so much beauty being made on so many levels both like high culture if you call it that low culture there's so many people trying to make something meaningful and, mm-hmm. and you know which is part of the constructive landscape as well and I feel like in a way people care about this stuff more than they ever have before like it used to be just this tiny group of you know aristocrats mm-hmm. that cared about the world around them being beautiful and and now there's so many people and it you know manifests itself in like these millions of ways some of which we are receptive to and some of which we're not but like I I refuse to see the world around me as just you know like like a, like a progressively deadening mental landscape mm-hmm. is, that, is that the way it comes out I guess do you really feel it I mean I, th- I feel yeah, okay, so um, something that might not be apparent um, to the listeners, I lived in New York City from 2006 to 2019, and my studio is still in Brooklyn, but in 2019, I moved uh, to a small town in upstate New York, and I go back and forth every week. And the landscape up here is green, and uh, you know people are walking around, and it's quite pleasant. And then I go into uh, New York City and uh, people are hysterical and paranoid and the um, subways are really starting to come apart. The advertising is all terrible. Uh, the streets smell god-awful because the trash collection is breaking down. Like, I love New York City. Um, and I think, I think that uh, over the course of human history, there have been these, these different... Uh, metropolises that bring together so many wonderful things, uh, and they're terribly expensive and impractical, uh, but they're they're just magical. And that was one of the things I loved about New York. Um, and to me, like in my experience, it's like watching like when you uh, have like a little uh, you know nephew that you don't see uh, like all that frequently, and so it jumps forward in time each time you go. I'm jumping forward in time. Uh, with my less frequent presence in New York, and New York seems to me to be very ill, and that's I find that oppressive and depressing, um, and so that's what I'm that's what I'm responding to. Or is it so that you now have something to compare New York to? Because I would argue that so I left New York probably at exactly the same time you did, right? A few months before the pandemic started. Yeah, and, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I also go back 
you know, like sporadically, but, you know, at least, at least once a month. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think um, when we lived in New York, A, we were used to it because we lived there for so long, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, I don't think New York is all that much thicker um, than it used to be. Like, like I moved there in 2004. There was parts of it that were totally yepified. There was parts that were actually still a little bit dodgy. As the streets definitely smelled like garbage all summer long. There was definitely more mental illness on the street, um, the um, and and people just kind of walking walking by that. But there was also everything that you talked about, also like like the reason that everyone was willing to pay exorbitant prices to live in a place which frequently smelled like garbage. Mm-hmm. That um, I, I actually I'm not sure if it's changing that much or if maybe you're changing and now you expect the air to smell like it does in upstate New York and you know the um and and, and are therefore kind of jarred by like 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 maybe you would have been jarred anyway. I think probably I would have been jarred anyway, but I will concede the point. Uh living in New York is sort of like living in a separate universe and it's very difficult to imagine a world outside of New York while you're in New York. And the first few times I went in and out of New York, I take a bus down. Uh, it was like flipping between realities uh, when you go through the tunnel and come into the city. It's yeah. very strange. And then like as soon, when you're in the city, it seems like the entire world is the city. And then as soon as you leave the city, you're like, this is like a tiny little dot on the map uh, <laughs> rapidly receding in the distance. Um, and now I've kind of gotten used to uh, to having a double life. <laughs> How how has this affected your artwork? The the idea of working in the city for those years and now working upstate. Has you do you feel your artwork changing? Your sense of importance in the work changing? Um, it's tough to say. I there was there was a lot. The lockdown itself produced a lot of changes in my work because I couldn't work with people for a while, um, and so I got serious about figuring out how to um, draw the figure from photographs. And that opened up so much territory that it's something that I'm still doing. So now I have a mix of life drawing and uh, and photograph drawing uh, in my work um, because, you know, there's a vitality and a spontaneity uh, with life drawing uh, and not just in the, in the composite, like you can sort of just stop uh, when you feel like the drawing is done, even though lots of it are formally not done uh, in a way that, is not intuitively clear when you're working from a photograph, uh, but a photograph opens up all kinds of complexities of pose, which are physically impossible to hold, and all kinds of stuff with light and composition and color. And also, I'm not taking a lot of these photographs, so what was a two-person collaboration of artist and model is now a three-person of artist, photographer, and model. Hmm. Um, and I'm really careful to credit photographers uh, when I post this stuff, um, because uh, I'm feeding on the, on their sensibility as much as uh, as much as on the model's sensibility, and I hope I'm contributing something to to what I'm doing as well. Um, but that's uh, that's a major change. But that doesn't really have to do with Kingston so much as with um, with uh, everyone being locked down for such a long time. Uh, I'm certainly making smaller paintings since I have. I'm making like my paintings at home right now and I don't have room to make gigantic paintings, but I was headed in that direction anyway. So I don't really know. Um, I don't know if it's made a specific difference. It must have, but I I can't figure out what it might be. Uh, Yeah, I have one question about the photo because so many people 
it does seem like a bit of a, I don't know, in some ways you could say uh, some people's dirty secret that they work from them and they say they don't or whatever. And then most everybody does. And it, it, but the, it does always seem like there's this translation issue of the flatness with the photo. Have you figured out any ways around that? Yeah, I have. Um, and I get, I get a lot of messages um, from uh, young people who are drawing from photographs. And you can tell they're drawing from photographs because their drawings are terrible. Uh-huh. Um, and they're terrible in a very distinctive uh, <laughs> way that involves drawing from a photograph. And it's that flatness. And so my advice is always just don't do it for like 10 years. Because what you have to train yourself in is the deficiencies of the photograph. And I've said this before, so I apologize if anyone's heard me go on about this before. But um, you have to train yourself to understand what, uh, what the camera takes out mm-hmm. and to be able to mentally reconstruct what was physically there so that uh, you're not drawing the photograph, you're drawing the scene that the photograph was a photograph of. And, uh, and that takes an enormous and continuing uh, practice with drawing from life. Um, so when I don't get an off-life drawing, I start to get that weird flatness and slavish reproduction of patterns of light and dark uh, that you see in, uh, in unskilled drawings from photographs. And if I keep enough life drawing in my diet, then I can draw from photographs uh, in a sense that... Uh, that is much more organic and, uh, and, and true to life. Yeah. I think I, th- I love what you said. And it's so important. I've, I, I run a few f- like figure drawing groups mm-hmm. just so I can keep doing that. And I think, and I notice a lot of my friends, contemporaries don't really just do that. Like you say you like you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's so important to just stay in that world. Like, most of my work is generated through photography, the work that I do, like commissions and all that stuff. But I got to keep my hand in life drawing weekly, at least, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and you feel that you, like I do too. Like I went on a road trip recently and I didn't draw for three weeks. And I went back in front of the model and it felt like I'd ne- never done it before. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do get that kind of thing. But like whenever I don't, touch my sketchbook for even a few days like uh, like the first drawing will be like rusty and awkward and the second one will also be like a little bit rusty and awkward like it's a muscle that like you can train it and like if you do it every day like like if you run every day it gets really like strong and then after a few days it gets less strong and then after a few weeks you're right Marshall like I definitely felt like I've picked up a pen uh if I if I haven't for for a while and I was like I forgot how to do this. That's it. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm for as an artist. Yeah, absolutely. I went through a year and a half of not painting recently, and I had a similar experience when I started painting again. And I was like, ah, what do these things do? <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you prefer? Because you do both exquisite drawings and paintings. What's your, what's well, your favorite? You. I, I don't know. It depends on what I'm doing right that minute. Like, I, I have this, in some ways, fortunate, in some ways, unfortunate tendency to be most interested in whatever is directly in front of me. Like I don't really have hierarchical thinking about, uh, about preference. So if I'm drawing, then it's drawing. And if I'm painting, then it's painting. Uh, so I just really love doing whatever I'm doing right that minute. Does anything govern what you will say like, Oh, I have this idea. This seems to be a better drawing. I have this idea. This seems to be a better painting. Do you, do you have any 
I don't know, concepts that govern which goes into which. <laughs> which oh, yeah. No, I mean, paintings like are uh, are much more like drawing. Like the, my default assumption with drawings is I'm just going to do some figure drawings because that's really fun. And I'm I'm not approaching them as like, you know, freestanding narrative compositions. I'm approaching them as like as figure drawings. Uh, it's like a sort of like a, a default process. Uh, and with paintings, like I'm not going to paint anything until I come up with an idea for a painting. And then I'm going to do as good a job as I can at painting that, like painting that idea and making it into a real thing. And I'm still working on getting better at that. I don't, I don't think I'm as good at painting as I am at drawing, but I've got a lot more practice drawing and painting's a lot harder, but I'm doing, I'm doing some work right now, which I can't talk about yet. Cause it's, you know, different from what I normally do. And I've got a show in October that I'm really excited about, but I'm painting a lot right now and I'm really pleased with what I'm doing. Um, That's great. Yeah. I have two questions. One quick, where's the show at? Uh, uh, Dacia Gallery on Lower East Side in Manhattan. Oh, nice. Perfect. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely be there. Oh, awesome. Um, and then the other one is about narrative and painting because I kind of work a little more narratively too. And I notice some people think about a painting should exist where it's just a struggle on a canvas void of narrative. And some people think narrative's close to illustration and it has all these things around it. What, how do you think about narrative in your work? Uh, sometimes it has it and sometimes it doesn't. I would say like, I have a, a few narrative sorts of paintings. Like there's a different, I think there's a difference between like a, you know, a configuration of objects and people and spaces that implies, I'm having trouble phrasing this. There's like strict uh, theatrical narrative painting which is a huge topic. I don't actually do that. Um, and I think that it's ext an extraordinarily difficult branch of painting and that most of what's done in that field right now is not very good. Then there are, you know, paintings of scenes uh, that imply a narrative, but it's not like you're like partway through a story and you're telling a story. It's just that, you know, like here's like a domestic scenario that... Uh, you know, lends itself to interpretation as part of an ongoing tale of somebody's life, you know. And then there's other stuff that, when I when I say that uh, my paintings aren't like there's like an idea that I'm trying to paint, it could have a, a kind of like a a somewhat narrative content of that second category, or it'll have like a concept that the um, that the painting is uh, trying to evoke and embody. I don't really do the theatrical uh, sorts of paintings. It's, it's, I mean, it's interesting to me, but I've never felt driven to pick up the set of skills that would make that possible. So I forget what the question was. <laughs> well, you're answering it just sort of how you feel about narrative. Because oh, yeah. Like, like, so the theatrical ones would sort of be more along the lines of like Bouguereau or something like. Yeah. And like the problem, the, the problem, as far as I can tell, apart from like the, all the technical skills involved in actually painting something like that and having it look, you know, sensible is that there's all this basically learning how to be a theater director involved in composing uh, a scene that transmits the information to the viewer in which there is some consistent sensibility to the figures that reads as realistic. So there's a lot of very stiff and contrived poses and expressions in narrative painting that push the, that push the uh, viewer out of the scene 
in a way that you don't find in well-directed theater or film. I think that painters who want to um, to do this kind of thing really need to be like probably apprentice to theater directors or hang out on film sets more um, and evaluate uh, paintings that have succeeded uh, in this field in centuries past in light of how you compose a scene on a stage, because that's basically what those painters were able to do. And they had a sense of verisimilitude of pose and gesture and um, expression, which um, if you have only training in how to make a figure stand right and be in proportion and how to get the light to look like it's coming from this direction, you're just not gonna know. Like you might be able to make it look physically plausible and yet your sense of psychology will be a disaster. So you need a whole set of, a whole world of skills to do this stuff well, that I think is insufficiently appreciated in that sector. I have a question for you because I feel the same way about that kind of, you know, theatrical narrative as you do. Mm -hmm. I'm also wondering if, you know, you know how certain types of, I don't know, lighting fixtures go out of style. Yeah. Like, I wonder if we're incapable of, kind of picking up on, like, if in a way, like, our our modern aesthetic, our contemporary aesthetic, just have a hard time picking up on that, like, like mm -hmm. we, we feel like it's too much, but can you think of a few 20th century paintings, the, uh, you know, theatrical narrative paintings that work? Because I can name, like, a lot before the 20th century, mm -hmm. but I'm struggling with, like, m m more recent stuff. <sighs> All right. Okay, so this is, I'm going to uh, have like an analogy here. If you like, when you choose the colors that you're going to use in a painting, they don't have to resemble the actual colors that exist in reality, but you have to be consistent in your use of the colors you've chosen. And then a person looking at the painting will buy it, right? They'll be like, okay, that makes sense. These colors make sense with each other. So even though that's not like really flesh color, it reads to my mind as flesh because it is like somewhat similar to flesh color and it's, it has a comparable set of, of interior relations that read to me as flesh colored. And so I look at this figure and I, nothing reads off, even though it's highly artificial. So in that sense, I think like some of the group scenes in Leonard Anderson, very stylized and lyrical and like sort of floaty and vague, but they, he follows a single set of rules and he doesn't have, he doesn't impose anything that, that pushes you out. Like you can buy it. The guy who did, um, there's a depression era painter who has a painting that's called like the rock or something. And it's this big, weird meteorite and all these like sort of um, rural people working around it. And it's extremely stylized and that totally works. I mean, I feel like Wyeth really sells it. I'm trying to think of like a few others. I mean, we get into the zone of illustrators. Like, you know, the first Wyeth also really sells it. And Norman Rockwell really sells it. There, your, your argument with those guys can be on the basis of a lack of a certain transcendent quality that characterizes serious art. But you cannot argue with them on the basis of capturing a specific moment inside of a story, which illuminates both that moment and everything around it. Like they nail it every single time. They understand gesture. They understand how people move in space around each other. They understand uh, facial expression and uh, they understand uh, the details that give you a sense of a whole world. And that, so that, that, tr that aspect 
of, of, of narrative painting is alive and well in illustration. It's just that the rest of art is often not there. So, uh, so there's, there's an upper limit to what you can get from it. How about our contemporaries? I'm not talking about anyone alive that we know. I, I know. I know. Uh, oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, unless I have unreserved praise, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm not out to say anything critical because uh, I'm an artist too. And I don't want, I don't want to be going around talking smack. We could go back in time for a little bit. So you are, you're in your early twenties. You've, you've had your two years with cadavers. I feel like by the time I met you, you are already kind of like an established artist and writer living in New York. But what happened in Bowie? How did you get there? Wow. Uh, what, what, when did we meet? We met, um, I know, so before we started this podcast, we were complaining about Facebook. So this mm-hmm. is Facebook. We actually met on Facebook. Oh, uh, oh we, yeah, okay. Uh, what I did between Gross Anatomy and... Um, and us meeting was I kept on uh, life drawing one to three times a week. Around 2002, I started painting badly. And I don't think I really was any good at painting until maybe 2012. But I am blessed with a ridiculous amount of self-confidence. So I didn't realize that I wasn't doing good work. And I was happy to like force people to look at it. <laughs> And you can really, if you, if you believe in yourself, you can convince other people to believe in you as well to a surprising extent. I also started um, writing about art, which it turned out was um, extraordinarily, I mean, I, it, I didn't do it for career purposes, but it wound up really helping my career a lot. And, um, and so by the time we met, I had been doing that long enough that like, a whole bunch of people knew me. We knew a lot of the same people. Um, I was getting to show sometimes. Um, you know what, what I remember about you is that so we, we met over a Facebook argument um, of an artist that we will not mention. Someone who said some things that was, well, I found really offensive on Facebook mm-hmm. before, you know, when Facebook was new and before I knew not to get involved, right? The, right, yeah. You were one of, it was an artist with a big name. And I think a lot of people were kind of willing to humor him because, you know, there was a big mm-hmm. name involved. And yes. you were one of the few people who was just willing to kind of stand up, you know, stand mm-hmm. up to him, despite the fact that he was famous, despite the fact that he was someone that, you know, both of us probably quite admired as an artist. And um, I think I actually wrote you like, like after, you know, after, after mm-hmm. that happened. And I was like, who, 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 you know, who are you? Because people who are willing to speak their mind mm-hmm. are so rare. Oh, well, thank you. And, you know, I, um, years later, uh, having gotten to know where that artist was coming from better, I kind of changed my mind about that and, uh, (laughs) and did my best, did my best to make it up to him because I think, uh, he was still upset about it. And, uh, and I, I think, I think we've managed to patch things up, but, uh, the good thing that came out of that at that time was meeting you. So, yeah. (laughs) How has art writing shaped what you do in the studio? You know, I use art writing to, like, it has a few purposes for me. One of them is uh, that I did go through a few very painful years uh, at the very beginning where uh, nobody knew me, nobody liked my work, and nobody wanted to help me. And I know that a lot of artists don't have the, um, the ability to access other skills to get around that period. And I wanted to help other artists as much as I could 
you know, by generating some, you know, some writing about them uh, and drawing attention to people who maybe didn't know how to draw attention to themselves. And I was very pleased to be able to do that in a few cases. But the other primary function was to teach myself about art uh, because I learned from writing. Um, so it forced me to organize my thoughts when I was looking at artwork. And in the process of organizing them, it would deepen and extend those thoughts. And they would uh, gradually spread and form networks of ideas, which opened my eyes to wider range of possibilities in art and potentials and options and available choices. And that isn't even necessarily reflected in my work, but having my work contextualized in a larger universe of possibilities to me like vitalizes the process of making it and sometimes uh, allows uh, choices that otherwise I would not have been able to make. And also just the process of learning about art is like, is enriching. I mean, it makes my life better. You know, art is full of ideas in very compact forms. And uh, like, I obviously approach things from a very idea oriented uh, perspective. So, and also I'm very visual. Uh, so I, but I, so I am attracted to art because I'm visual, uh, but I dissect art uh, in an intellectual uh, sense. And I even, I dissect my emotional experience of art uh, from an intellectual perspective. And I just find that rewarding in and of itself. So I have all these thoughts running around in my head when I'm in the studio. And I have like uh, what I think of as dense time, like time that's, that's filled to brimming with meaning. And so that makes it something that I really enjoy doing. Hmm. I want to put a, like a little circle back to something you said that seems to be a common thread throughout the podcast is someone who does a thing that they love and it's so fickle. It's like some get attention, some don't. It doesn't really seem to have much to do with talent or hard work. And so it's a variable that's out there. Will... And the attention people want is just seems to be to keep creating this thing, you know, get some income so you can keep doing this. And you talked about being, finding a bit of a workaround. And it seems like so many people we interview, there's like a, a tenacity and a scrappiness to the ones who cross over that threshold to that allows them to keep working. And it, it feels like the ability to find other ways and or hang hang in there a little longer or something. Um, well, well, Mark, though, because the ones that we interview are the ones that are still doing it. The ones who didn't have the tenacity and you know, didn't have the scrappiness are now doing something else. Well, I, I, you know, so you can fall out of love with it. You know, I started in film and I spent 22 years trying to be a filmmaker. Uh, and some of this is overlapped with the art stuff. Um, but I'm not on any uh, film podcasts talking about how I didn't make it. Uh, <laughs> 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 My thoughts on film are not considered interesting by the film community. That would be a good... It would be a good pod, pod, All of the people that did something for a really long time, got really, really good at it, were never recognized, maybe didn't make it or fell out of love with it. <laughs> this, is a re this is a recognized problem 
with the entire topic of like how to succeed media, uh, that there is an intense selection bias for people who succeeded. And uh, they represent a subset of all the people who tried, which uh, is not necessarily related to anything they're conscious of or consistent or anything. Like you talking to people who succeeded doesn't necessarily tell you how to succeed because, um, because they have no idea what the, fa- what the factors were. Mm. I'm so happy you said that because we get a lot of, you know, responses saying like, I wish you'd talk more about how to make it, you know? And it's just uh-huh. like, how are you gonna how are you gonna do that? If you listen to the show, everybody found the way that only worked for them at that one moment, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean get a lock. You like it like you go back to like it takes you to like Epicurus and Epictetus, who are like, you've got to concentrate on uh the things that you can control. And you're like, all the things that you can't control include the entire world and everything that happens to you in it. And the only things that you can control are interior to yourself. Uh, so success ultimately is uh, doing something that is uh, rewarding to you in some spiritual way. And um, you can control that. That's the only form of success you can control. There are things that have a statistical likelihood of helping you out in the external world, but to lodge your sense of self-worth or happiness or success in them is a fool's game. Yes. Uh, yeah, yes, I haven't gotten most of what I wanted, but I got a lot of stuff and I'm grateful for it. And, and you said earlier that art, you were like, I don't think it necessarily helps the world, or I forgot how you worded it. I worded it clumsily, mm-hmm. but it can grow your soul. And it reminds me of, well, a film like Tarkovsky had that great quote that art prepares you for death, you know, like mm-hmm. that doing it. And man, I feel like if there, if my heart's in one place, it's in that just like, do this thing because it's rewarding to you, whether you're uh, working a job that you don't like, you can carve a few hours to do this thing. And that's as valid as anyone else's journey doing it, you know, no matter what rewards they give for it. It's just, it, it's, it's a soul generating process that feels, if that's worth something to you, then do it. <laughs> yeah. And it, it can be done with next to no resources. You can't like, you can't do like a 20 foot painting with no resources but you can draw something on a sketch pad with no resources and with no time and with no space and with no skill. Uh, and if it, if it, if it means that much to you, you'll get, you will get what you need to, um, uh, over time. Uh, so yeah, I, to- I totally agree with you. And, um, so what does, what does drawing mean to you then? Like in that way, how, do, how does it enrich you? You want to ask a question first because it's okay. Really- the last said, and if we let it go, it's going to make less sense. Okay, so you said that you haven't gotten most of what you wanted, but you have gotten a lot of stuff that you're grateful for. And what, when you said that, I was like, right, all of the things that I wanted in my 20s, I probably didn't get, or at least some of them I didn't get, mm-hmm. right? But then the things that I wanted in my 20s also seem, a lot of them seem really silly and self-absorbed right now and the things that I did end up getting are very different um, but seem a lot kind of richer and more complex and you know and who knows I might feel the same in 20 years like god 20 years ago it's really shallow but what did you want and do you feel like the things that you wanted are still valid Um, what, what did you want then and what do you want now you know I wanted a lot more external appurtenances of success then, like certain categories of 
gallery and press and financial reward, which <laughs> at this point I don't really care about. Uh, you know, I'm I'm thrilled that I'm able to sell uh, enough work that it's most of my income. I, I you know, that's fantastic. Like that's uh, I, I I can't believe I get to do that. Um, I am very happy to have a, like a bunch of different kinds of work that I'm making that challenge me in different ways. Uh, I'm really glad. I'm. I'm glad that I've been doing some of this long enough that I've gotten to the point that I think I'm doing some of it pretty well. I'm happy to have my friends. I'm ha- I'm grateful for my collectors. My collectors have always been uh, people who bought my work because they loved it and not as an investment, which has upsides and downsides. Like the downside is you're not going to get super rich, but the upside is uh, all of your collectors are your friends. Um, and you know that your work has gone someplace where it will really be loved. I can't believe how lucky I got with that. So there, there are a lot of things that, um, that I wanted earlier that were stupid things. Um, but there were also a lot of things that if they were offered to me now, I would be like, yeah, sure. I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not going to like tear myself up about it anymore because I, I've real, it's less important to me now than it was then. It would be, it would be nice to have, but not having it doesn't kill me. And it really did when I started. Um, I was very frustrated and angry a lot. But I hope I'm less so now. Hmm. You know, so one thing that I feel like when I met you, um, the one thing I was frustrated and angry about and that I really wanted, that I still don't feel like was stupid, was for the kind of art that we make to become just mainstream enough where people we know and like can make a living and mm-hmm. I, like and I spent a lot of effort trying to like curate shows I feel like I spent a lot of effort trying to get you to write about these shows thinking that that would kind of help things you know mm-hmm. help change but overall I feel like that part like it just happened without me the mm-hmm. world didn't need to make it to make that happen but the kind of work that we make and our friends make and the people we respect make does have a place in the world right now in a much bigger way than the little niche that we started out in. Yeah, and I think we can thank, um, I mean, we have a lot of bitching to do about Facebook, but uh, we can thank Instagram for that in very large measure, I think. I mean, apart from like the fact that the ateliers and all the art schools wouldn't go away, when you took out the gatekeepers on where the mass of fans migrated to, they immediately went to figurative work. And most of the figurative work is trash, but it's all figurative. And that that effect was invisible before Instagram. Uh, so that's that's a very positive thing that it's done. <laughs> the, um, I mean, we can go back to complaining about all the negative stuff, but um, yeah. it, um, no, you're, you're right. You're right. And I think in that way, the world has changed um, in, in a good way. Like the um, art world has changed in a good way. The, um, so what do you want now? And actually, you know what? Let's go back to Mar- before you you respond to that. Let's go back to Marshall's question about drawing. <laughs> okay, what was Marshall's question? It was what does art? How do you feel like your process of art uh, feeds feeds your soul in that way? What what does it do for you? Okay, um, well, you know, there's really it, there, there's no way other than than like using religious terminology to describe it. You're glorifying God if you have a world that underneath any, uh, any scales that are on your eyes is beautiful and meaningful. And you, um, you devote yourself to the practice of be- becoming, uh, gaining the sight of that 
and then being able to communicate the sight of that. That's rewarding in and of itself. It's worth doing. It makes you better. It makes you happier. It makes your life more profound. Uh, it teaches you new things. You know, all the good things that you can say about that kind of practice are true for it. So The way, the way you mentioned it almost reminds me of like a hero's journey too. Like you delve into exploring this gift of sight basically and then you bring it back out to your community you know what you found in those depths i think that's really beautiful oh thanks i <laughs> i uh, i haven't i haven't read campbell i uh i avoid i i i was scared that i would start writing uh according to a campbellian template so i never read that book have <laughs> you <laughs> It, um, his name is Ted Chang. He has this short story called Hell is the Absence of God. Mm-hmm. It's one of like, it's simultaneously kind of funny and terrible, but it's about a world in which heaven and hell are visible. Like mm-hmm. you can down through the, like every once in a while, you can just look down beneath your feet and hell becomes visible through the floor and you just see all these souls wandering around. And angels have these physical, they make physical visits to the world and, you know, but they're very haphazardly destructive. So the people would see the angels, some of them get cured and some of them actually develop these like, you know, deadly diseases and die. And you don't know which one you'll be. The point of it is, yeah, there's a character that is trying to believe in God so much so as to become reunited with his wife that kind of ended up dying in an angelic visitation. Mm -hmm. Um, Hell is the absence of God is kind of where, so he ends up in hell, just to ruin it for you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but um, it, it's a beautiful story, nevertheless, because, but what he realizes, what he finally believes in God, mm-hmm. only he ends up in hell. And it turns out that hell is just like everywhere else, except without God and without the possibility of belief in God. Mm-hmm. And I think you're kind of getting at a little bit of the same thing, like, like like seeing God. Like I'm not a religious person, but I totally know what you what you meant about seeing God through the way that you draw. Thanks. Yeah. No, I'm glad that makes sense to you. Um, and I, I've talked about it with religious friends before. It makes sense to them, which is nice. Are you, are you religious in any way? Not really. Um, but. Uh, you know, you 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 explore this territory, and uh, and you butt up against things that uh, that are inevitably religious in nature. Yeah, because it's a search for something, right? Like, uh, what do they say? God is the word that we made up for things that we don't understand. You know, and it's like I think vision and your interpretation of your vision and your inner impulses on, on paper, that's pretty intangible stuff right there. It's definitely chasing something that doesn't, that isn't apparent. It's a mystery, right? Mm-hmm. I read this, reading this book yesterday and it had this quote that stuck with me and it's like, God is the world's least interesting answer to the world's most interesting questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, your story about hell, I don't know how far back the concept goes, but like it's that description is in Christopher Marlowe and Milton as well. Um, so that that seems like a, a fairly well well recognized idea. The last time I read Paradise Lost was probably about twenty years ago. I remember being stricken by it and then forget and I'd forgotten everything. It's like, <laughs> 
probably reread it just to know what I'm talking about. When 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 lockdown started, I was like, I'm going to read one of these books that I always wanted to read. So I started uh, reading Paradise Lost, and I'm about halfway through. Uh, <laughs> but the part I'm talking about is in the first half. <laughs> it gets really hard once, like it's less about the devil because, like, he's like his Satan is so good. But then he gets into like Adam and Eve's adventures, and it's not as much fun. Um, your son is actually almost old enough for this. Um, have you tried his dark materials? We're reading Narnia right now, and uh, we're not going to talk about my son's name or age. Um, but we're reading Narnia right now, and also Harry Potter, and a few other a few other similar things. Add his dark materials to the list because it's probably so it's the children's retelling of Paradise Lost, mm-hmm. and it's probably my favorite. I love Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really like Narnia, and I think his Dark Materials trumps all, all the other trilogies. So. I, th- I think we're going to wait until, uh, until he's a little older for that one. All right. Yeah, uh, yeah that's uh, some pretty harsh material. <laughs> I've been rereading it every two years for probably, you know, most of my wow. life. Wow. Yeah, no, I, that, was, that, that was the book where I was, like, sitting at a, um, a Borders Books in Los Angeles crying when I get to the end of it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I, one at, the one at third and La Cienega. <laughs> um, yes, so I cry every time and I really okay. see uh-huh. Well, you're also publishing a book, right? Yes. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, that's, uh, uh, this is a, a novel. It's the first volume of a very long story and I've been writing it for a very long time. And, you know, they suggest that you write a number of novels because your first one's going to suck. But what I did was I wrote the first one eight times. <laughs> and so I uh, I finally got a draft that was uh, more or less presentable. And it's uh, it should be coming out like sometime between the fall and the spring. I think it's, called, it's technically secondary world military slash metaphysical fantasy. It's, uh, it's about a Bronze Age civilization that uh, like a couple of nations that have been at war forever and the very painful process of uh, of coming to terms and and forging peace, aided by a female exile from a very advanced civilization who is just struggling to get home, and inadvertently changes everything around her uh, while she's uh, while she's trying to figure out how to get back. Yeah. So she's coming from a different. Uh, is this even she, like? A- she's basically blown there on a storm, uh, thousands of miles from where she uh, started. And uh, and you know they and and so she's going to need them to industrialize in order to get her back because it's so far away. And there's there's a certain amount of magic, um, not very much, uh, and there's some very weird technologies in it. So how does that feel being primarily visual artist moving into writing? Do you do you feel like it takes away from your time drawing? Do you feel like it enhances the time you have drawing? What are your thoughts about having? you know, feet into two rivers at this point? Well, distribution of, of time and energy is difficult, but um, like basically uh, what happened was when, like I, I started with a unified impulse uh, to make films. And then when I, like that, when that didn't work out and I had a huge breakdown about it, it fragmented the impulse into uh, the visual side of it and the verbal side of it. Uh, yeah. And they became two independent impulses which run on uh, fairly independent tracks. So though my, I don't think that my writing has all that much 
intrinsically to do with my drawing and painting. Um, they're just different things that I do that I enjoy doing. And definitely when I'm focused on one, uh, the other one will um, sort of die off a bit because I only have so much time and energy. But And I, I'm going to be shifting back into writing more soon. But r- working on the last couple drafts of this novel over the past two years uh, is one of the reasons that I've been doing less art criticism because I'm using up all of my verbal capabilities on the book. So in addition to, like, I have this persistent feeling that I've said everything I have to say about art and I don't have any new ideas. So why would I just repeat myself? So anyway, you know, it's a complicated and logistically demanding life. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, But uh, just to pitch it a bit, the book's called The Exile of Zanzibar, and it will be from Griffith Moon. Uh, So hopefully this fall, I don't know. um, Billy Norby's painting the cover for me. Oh, he's great. Yeah. Isn't he fantastic? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I'm doing interior illustrations that I can like, well, first of all, they're fun. And second of all, uh, I can't really post about the book to Instagram if it's not a drawing because like I get zero traction on anything but a drawing. So I was like, I better have a bunch of drawings that I made for this book so I can like post them and then be like, hey, buy my book. So it's going to be illustrated. That's so exciting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, will, will it be, uh, will there be an audio version that I could listen to? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> right, right now there are no plans. This is a very small press with a very <laughs> tiny budget. But uh, if there's sufficient demand, uh, I'll look into that. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a question uh, about just sort of pick your brain on insight. Where do you think, I feel like we're coming out of this post-pandemic art world where galleries are sort of revving back up and it feels like Instagram's like importance in some ways has dwindled a little in the art. And we've seen paintings, maybe we could say they're getting sort of lumped into various trends that are easy to spot. Where where do you see painting heading, like figurative painting? You know, I don't know. I haven't been looking at the bigger scene enough lately to get a sense of that. Uh, I haven't been to too many openings Instagram's just a mess with all this like mania about reels. I don't know what the economics with galleries is right now. I know that they really took a hit from from Instagram and then they took another hit from uh, shutting for two or three years. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I actually am completely unqualified to say that's like a topic that I hadn't thought of. And now that you've mentioned it, I'm kind of interested myself. <laughs> so <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Boy, I well, I'll tell you one thing that has concerned me is the way that things are censored um, covertly, you know? It's not this overt censorship because we're participating in social media voluntarily, but we're participating under their guidelines, which is prioritizing certain things and deprioritizing other things. And it does seem like there's a generation coming up that's, more accustomed to the things that this algorithm has prioritized for the last 10 years. And I definitely am concerned that it's, it's sort of a general watering down of what art could be out there. You know, I think you're perfectly, that's a hundred percent correct. And uh, I think, I think that the consolidation of the public space into a restricted zone under the control of corporations with non-transparent uh, censorship policies is a catastrophe. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the sooner that breaks up, the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, 
do you see it breaking up or do you see it kind of intensifying? That's, I think it's too early to say. Um, I, uh, I think that there, you know, there are all kinds of attempts to uh, get out from under it, none of them gaining much traction. I think that it's hopeful that there are people are trying but I also think that um, there's some chance that if those uh, alternative attempts do gain sufficient traction, then the consolidationists will simply shift from uh, the platform level to the infrastructure level in, uh, in censorship so that uh, they'll use the, uh, the internet itself as opposed to uh, particular popular or unpopular domains uh, in order to uh, keep people from doing things they don't like. Mm. So you're almost saying like search like Google itself would sort of oh Google itself already does that but um but what I'm what I'm saying is uh so like they're like well you know make make a website where you can post the art that you want well you won't get a domain name and uh, and you won't be able to have like any kind of like commercial transactions and uh, no nothing will be able to direct to anything that you post to the web uh, you'll basically be locked off the internet. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, we'll be back to, you know, mimeographed newsletters and so on <laughs> and zines, um, which is fine. I mean, that, you know, cool. maybe the Internet isn't the answer, um, but it's certainly convenient. Uh, so that's uh, but I mean, I don't think that anything's gotten enough traction yet that, uh, you know, Meta has decided that they need to crush it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like any, anything that they weren't able to buy uh, outright. But I mean, so your work is part of what gets censored on these social media platforms just because it has, you know, nipples and occasional genitals. How how do you feel about that? I'm opposed. Uh, I mean, (laughs) there's like, there there is a legitimate problem that they are contending with, which is that like you basically, there's no formal distinction between what we do and pornography. And once you let pornography onto a platform, pornography is all that exists on the platform. And that was like what basically turned um, Tumblr. Was it Tumblr that like just basically turned into a gigantic like porn dump? Hmm. You know, do, do you remember when um, you know phones was a camera first became a thing? Like just flip mm-hmm. phones as a little camera. Yeah. So at some point they did some you know research or whatever, and it turned out that some something like seventy five or seventy eight percent of every single photo that was being taken with those was was a dick pic. Wow. Like the second you give them a camera that you can walk around with, this is what they will use it on. Well, I think that, remember the killer app theory that basically like any technology will uh, will be adopted once people figure out how to pornographize it. Uh, <laughs> and this like happened with like chemical photography in the 19th century <laughs> and like has happened with every other media technology ever since. Oh my God. Yeah. The thing with kind of social media censorship, right, is that a human being can actually tell the difference between art and porn in a heartbeat. But because it's it's AI, it's artificial intelligence censorship, the AI can't, like, I think it still can't tell the difference between a dog and a cat. And mm-hmm. it definitely can't tell the difference between, you know, between art and pornography, which is actually why all of the censorship is happening. It's like humans just gave a parameters but mm-hmm. now we have an AI that's determining what's porn and what's art. And that's right. the part that I find really, you know, disturbing. And like, it makes me kind of queasy, but they gave it a certain parameters a bunch of years ago. And now the AI is actually 
evolving based on those parameters to, you know, to be able to, to, to determine what is and isn't porn better and better except mm-hmm. teaching itself. So yeah. first it was just nipples and then it was like nipples and butts uh, because porn has both. And then, you know, what else does porn have? Porn has belly buttons. So it'll suppress stuff with belly buttons and clavicles and a lot of wow. the same, you know, a lot of the body parts that you, you know, probably first learned about when you were dissecting them. Mm-hmm. So it's not just you, it's kind of the entire figurative art world really that has ever painted anything close to a nude. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, all the all the attempts to do something about it seem to, uh, you know, they're sort of, they're like all those attempts we made to have like the figurative art renewal, you know, movement when like all the different names we gave it. Like everyone keeps trying and nothing changes. Eventually, I think like something will change. But, you, know, I mean, there no, there, uh, it that legitimately is a problem unless you have human beings reviewing all the, I assume billions of posts. There's no, there's no really good way to distinguish between art and pornography. And once you allow um, the art that could be considered pornography on, then you're going to wind up with pornography and the pornography will drive out everything else. So I have like a certain amount of sympathy for um, the policy, but I think that the, um, I think the solution's badly implemented and, and, uh, and it may be that the entire the entire question is being aimed in the wrong direction. Uh, there may be some other means of solution. Uh, the thing is, like, it, you have to have something that benefits from the like massive network effects of a Facebook or an Instagram, um, and uh, and so you're you're gonna you're gonna get tripped up. Um, you know, like Artsy is not a is not like a, a mass communication platform. Uh, you're not. You don't have like people wandering in off the street and being like, "Oh, this is interesting." On artsy, like, you do have that on Instagram. Do you, Do you think ultimately the the realm of painting that is a lot of the big ideas we've discussed today? You know, just sort of like it's elusive. Maybe it's tied into a, a an impossible search, and maybe it benefits you. Maybe it benefits other people. All these kind of like grand notions, do you think they're too esoteric for where culture's headed? Do you think there will continue to be a place for these type of ideas or, or is the culture in terms of tolerance for that sort of thing shrinking a little bit and it's all just turning into corporate fluff? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that um, it's very, uh, I think that we have a tendency there are, well, there are two. There are a few different factors involved here. Uh, one of them is that I think that the questions that uh, that you're asking about will always be interesting to a minority of people, and that's not that's not wrong. It's just the way it is. Um, the other thing is that we have a tendency to think that the way things are now is the way they've always been and will always be, including very fundamental facets of our contemporary culture. And I think that over the next uh, decade or two, we're going to find that those those things are much more transitory than they looked. I think that there is a craving on the part of a certain fraction of people for uh, experience and insight in the territory that you're discussing and that that doesn't go away. And so it will find a means of expressing itself regardless of the adversity of external circumstances. And those people will tend to find each other. They always have and they always will. And so I'm I'm not particularly optimistic about any kind of mass increase in interest in that, but I'm not pessimistic 
that uh, that what we have now will uh, will go away over time. And, and maybe mass interest in that kind of thing is almost an oxymoron. Like there was always a minority of people interested in that. And I think it'll continue to be a minority, although there's now easier ways for these people to find each other, right? There's not just two of them in a small town where they're completely intellectually isolated. In theory, they could find the other two people in, you know, in all the small towns. It'll still be much smaller than the number of people who are interested in like corporate fluff um, or rainbow unicorn uh, videos on, on social media. I don't even know what those are. Um, <laughs> um, you're just in the wrong part of Instagram. <laughs> I apparently am. Uh, the, you, you remind me, though, apparently there was a period for like a few hundred years in Constantinople where everybody was arguing about theology. And like to some extent, it replaced them uh, rooting for different chariot teams. And, uh, and they were just like, you go to like the shop to get your bread and like you wind up arguing with the baker about theology, which is hilarious. <laughs> so that did happen. It's <laughs> uh, hilarious. That actually sounds wonderful. You know how there's fake nostalgia where, or, or there's preemptive nostalgia where you're nostalgic for something that, you know, it hasn't passed yet, but there's also fake nostalgia mm-hmm. where you're nostalgic for something you've never actually experienced. Yeah. So, Right now, I'm getting fake nostalgia for that time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I to argue theology with the baker. Right. It sounds delightful. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of which, I don't know about you, but, you know, like we, we both left New York a few years ago. I, I so In the back of my mind, up until very recently, I always played with the idea of coming back if mm-hmm. life shaped out to be as a, you know, a certain way, which it wasn't really shaping out to be. Um, and only recently was like, you know, was I like, you know what, like, I think I'm not going to go back. I'm going to make a life where I am because like, and I'm going to stop feeling nostalgic for um, the New York that I knew, not because it's different, but because, because I was the New York I'm nostalgic for is the New York of when I was in my twenties having all debates about art deep into the night. And do you have, moments when you play with a lot of going back or are you going to stay where you are? Uh, I like where I am. Um, I also like being in New York, uh, like basically two days a week. Um, and, uh, I mean, I don't feel, I don't identify as intensely with the city as I did, but, uh, my people are there and I like being able to see them. And, uh, you know, I'll have, I still have like wonderfully New Yorky days, or, you know, you'll, you'll walk around and you'll see three or four different friends at different times of the day in different neighborhoods. And uh, you're just, you know, filled with, um, with like joy of New York, which is going around the city. I don't think I, fe- I don't think I feel a need to live there right now. I've lived in Toronto, D.C., Chicago, Los Angeles, Jerusalem and New York. So I've spent most of my life in big cities and uh, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm currently in a smallish town and I'm enjoying that a great deal. So. Hmm. What are your days like? Uh, we're homeschooling. So a lot of it involves hanging out with a little kid. Um, and we, we trade off like uh, who, who, you know, who's, who's in charge on which day. And then, uh, I, you know, I have a coffee shop where I go and write. And then I also uh, draw and paint at home, usually late at night. Uh, I tend to stay up till like two or three in the morning. 
Um, uh, you know, I spend the last half hour reading. You know, I guess like that, walking around a small town, hmm. that kind of thing. It's really nice. So it's, it sounds like this life is so nice. You got you have time to read. You get to do writing and drawing, and it all hinges on production of artwork, essentially, which seems fickle. Do, do you ever worry that all, all that you work for would disappear through the fickleness of the art market? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and it's not, I mean, I also have a day job. So I, I do have a day job doing uh, science education consulting. And that that and art have reinforced one another uh, as like, you know, separate revenue streams enough to work out pretty much for a very long time. If the art market completely collapses uh, and, you know, some of the economic signs suggest that it might, I could be in trouble. I, li- I really like to have diversified income streams as much as possible uh, because I feel like depending too much on any one uh, stream is, uh, you know, like having an under-diversified ecosystem. It's very unstable. So, you know, I worry about it, but it's not, it, my life doesn't have to be expensive. Um, there are expenses that I could cut out of it if necessary. You know, I try not to worry too much about things that I can't control and plan for the elements of it that I can. Yeah, it's important. It's definitely important to, for everybody listening to diversify and try to find various ways to to make a network of stability because it's it's an unstable life. For yeah, sure. I mean you you teach, right? Yeah, yeah. And Dina, yeah. what do you what do you do, Dina? Who knows? I've spent a lot of time this year trying to get alone for an apartment and trying to explain to various people what I do has proved to be almost impossible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I think I put a very vague label on it, like I'm a consultant. Mm-hmm. I don't know what everyone else does. I kind of like cobble mm-hmm. together something every month and I am like shocked and delighted. Um, mm-hmm. I, like at the end of the month, we're like, Thing, like 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 the financial puzzle like seems to come together, right? Um, but but I'm also like I'm shocked, delighted, and terrified that it won't happen again the next month. <laughs> yes, uh, we're hunter gatherers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to I, I want to get to Dina's question. What what do you want now? Where are you headed? Oh, I would like I would really like this book to find a uh, readership. That would mm-hmm. be great. I want I want the. I want there to be enough support that the next six volumes that I have planned of it will go okay. Uh, that'd be um, awesome. Yeah, um, I'd like to continue growing as a painter. Yeah, um, you have at least one reader. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> two, two. Especially if it goes on audio. Especially on audio books. <laughs> uh, you said uh, also grow as a painter? Yeah. Um, I think that there's a lot of room for me to grow as a painter. And I think that I'm still like closer to the beginning of understanding how to be a good painter than I am to like any kind of apex. So I'm working on that. You know, between those, I'm pretty happy. And, you know, like real life stuff, like real life stuff is very nice. So, yeah. Do you have any advice for people listening? Just just n- not on how to, how to make it as an artist, mm-hmm. but how to keep going as an artist? It's to some extent, like it's... um. There's, I, I guess there, there are two components. One of them is un, unteachable and incommunicable. And that is simply that if, uh, if you are an artist, you cannot help but keep going. 
right? But there are also definitely passages of time where you are on the knife's edge between going and not going. And the right thing for you is to keep going. And then maybe hearing an encouraging word from somebody who has um, been through that in what in their own field or in your field could make a difference. And in that sense, if you like have a bone deep sense that you should keep going, then you must keep going and it's going to be okay. Even if your practical circumstances are not okay, you'll be okay. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot that human beings can suffer short of death that, uh, that they ought to be willing to suffer if they care enough about their work. Uh, so don't give up, even though it's really, really difficult, but definitely get a day job if you can. And then you can also be at that knife edge where you're like, maybe I shouldn't keep going. And if you can bear not to keep going, then maybe take a break. It might not be the thing that you're supposed to be doing all the time or the main thing that you're doing. And you should always be open to giving up and starting again. Um, if you are animated by passion, then if your passion is thwarted in one region, then it may be the wrong region for you and you will find an outlet for it somewhere else. I've been through that. It took me a great deal of humiliation and acceptance of humiliation to get over film. But it's and the years of spinning my wheels before I was like, you know what, this isn't working. I have to figure out something else to do. But you will always, if you are uh, an artist at heart, you will find a medium that is your medium. And even if no one ever recognizes you for it, you'll be making work that satisfies you as a human being. But more fundamentally, you're not going to be able to stop anyway. So, um, so it's, it's going to be okay. <laughs> That is really good advice. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, by the way, for like talking to us. And yeah, thank you for so much for like doing all this. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I, you know, I've, I've, I've really loved all the episodes of this podcast I've listened to. And I, uh, I am just so fond of both of you and happy to have you in my life. Hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. Just an update. We don't have the hotline anymore, but you can still reach us through the DM on our IG at Art Grind Podcast, or you can email us at artgrindpodcast at gmail.com. If you're so inclined, feel free to rate us, whether you love or hate us. We'd love to hear all of it. More the merrier. Spread the word and subscribe. Or you could try to find us in New York. And when you see us, give us a wink and nod and the Art Grind handshake. It is a secret handshake. So, yeah. Till next time. Peace.